You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 72. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker, story, Robot. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And I am excited about this because this is the very first Doctor Who story I ever saw on PBS oh, wow. television back in 1976 or whatever it was. Okay. Wow. When it first came to my part of the country. Excellent. So let's I wanted to I want to talk about like your how, how it um, the impressions that you had of it. So it was originally broadcast in uh, December 1974, January 1975, because it's four episodes uh, in Britain, uh, but there was a time span uh, before it aired in the U.S. Um, uh, just as a quick a aside, of, I, was this the, f when, when did it start getting aired in the U.S. regularly? You know, well, it, it, the BBC had been selling Doctor Who to overseas markets for ever since the beginning, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually why a bunch of the episodes that the BBC wiped have been recovered because mm -hmm. they're they're being found or have been found in, you know, like Singapore or Kenya or TV stations all over the place. Right. Um, here in the United States, I my understanding is that some of the John Pertwee material aired in some markets. Mm -hmm. I had a friend in Arkansas who had seen some of the John Pertwee stuff uh, before. And this is pre-VCR, um, mm -hmm. pre-home video. Uh, and she had seen some on her local station that was on the East Coast. It may have been, I want to say it may have been up in Boston or something. Right. But then... Uh, PBS did some kind of broad deal with the BBC at the beginning of the Tom Baker era that uh, led to the mass popularity in the U.S. Mm -hmm. because suddenly PBS stations all across the country were, were showing the Tom Baker era Doctor right. Who. You know, one, one thing uh, that happened back then, you know, with, with New Who now, especially now as popular as New Who is in the United States, they're the same day. When it's right. released in Great Britain, that evening it's released here. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them, as I, I recall, and Jimmy, you probably recall this as well. It was generally about a year delay. Yeah, something like that. So because I, you know, I, I started watching Doctor Who in the mid 80s. So that would have been Colin Baker era, Sixth Doctor and uh, Sylvester McCoy, Seventh Doctor. And we would get new episodes about a year after they would show. And it wasn't as big of a wait, really, because there was no internet at the time. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't really know what you were missing. And you weren't getting you weren't spoiled. Getting, you, yeah. you weren't getting spoiled. You weren't getting emails from people talking right. about how great or how terrible the mm -hmm. latest episode was. Well, and and um, at least my PBS station between seasons would show other doctors. So oh, they'd show cool. the latest season of Sylvester McCoy. And then they jump back to John Pertwee mm -hmm. and kind of work through through John Pertwee and Tom Baker. And, and maybe they go, you know, like Fun Drive, of course, you know, PBS and their their lovely Fun Drive. For those of you who are <laughs> from the United States, PBS about every three, three months will do will have their their fundraising. And that's when they'll show their specials. And so they'll go back and, oh, they, they've got this newly remastered version of the first episode of Doctor Who. So they go back and show an unearthly child okay, or, you know, this or that or this special or that special or just throw on Riverdance again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I remember the first my first exposure to Doctor Who and, and and it's to my great regret. It was a Tom Baker episode, but it was. What, what was it? Do you remember? I, I don't because my, the, the overwhelming impression I got was, wow, those sets are awful. Like <laughs> it was like it was so like because I was a Star Trek fan and you know in that in the late it was it had to be the late seventies, uh, you know Star Trek and then Star Wars had come out and all the, the this you know the mm -hmm. the the what they were able to do and 
this particular episode had, I, I distinctly remember it, uh, I can picture it, This they were running around, it was inside on a soundstage on sets that looked like a soundstage, <laughs> like cheap, they looked cheap, <laughs> and I'm like, I no, I'm not going to like this, So I, and I, I, I didn't watch it. Um, to my regret now, because now I'm looking at watching these episodes that we're watching now and I'm like, wow, I would have liked this back then. I would have really, mm-hmm. you know, as a kid, I would have enjoyed this. This like today's episode t- totally would have, would have interested me at that age at that time when it aired. I mean, I, you know, I don't think well, it's not, it might've been 1976, I, I, you know, around then I saw it, uh, it could be this, this very first season of Tom Baker, but you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, so it's to my regret that I didn't catch the right episode at the right time, uh, mm-hmm. to really pull me in. So it's, um, I do remember though, how big Dr. Who was. And I used to go to, you remember creation con creation was a, uh, a fan yeah. convention uh, company that traveled around. They did mostly Star Trek at the time, mm-hmm. but other fan stuff was there. And uh, I remember going to the ones in Boston and there's always some guy with a long scarf and the hat and the coat, you know, a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> Early cosplay before yeah. there was a name for it. Right, right. In fact, it was almost always multiple people. Um, and I was like, well, that's the different kind of fandom that I'm in. So I'm not, I don't know what's going on with those guys, that weird British sci-fi, uh, but, uh, to my regret. So let's, let's talk about this episode. This is, uh, as we said, the first Tom Baker episode, um, robot story, right. Story, uh, robot. Uh, it was for truth in advertising. You're going (laughs) to, we're going to get what they promised us in the title. (laughs) Right. Which is, which is kind of funny, but I'll say why that's kind of funny. The, the, but, um, it's, it's, it's the regenerate where once again, we're going through the regeneration episodes, the post regeneration episodes of each Mm -hmm. of the doctors. So we're up to the, uh, to the fourth doctor. Um, so this follows planet of the spiders, which we've already talked about. Right. And as, as always, the doctor in his immediately post-regeneration is going to, is often odd and finding his bearings and that sort of thing. And that really comes out here. Uh, you know, we've got Sarah Jane Smith, we've got, uh, Harry Sullivan, uh, we got the Brigadier. Uh, those are the primary companions. Yeah, Harry Sullivan is new in this one. We've we haven't seen him before. We've only heard of him. And Father Cry, I think you were mentioned that you you particularly liked Harry Sullivan. Was that you who said that? Um, um I, I I mean I liked him as as kind of a sarcastic kind of doesn't really put up with the doctors. Mm-hmm. Stuff. <laughs> he's a you he's know. a fun character. Yeah, yeah. I think he's we kind can... of underused, which is why he didn't yeah. last long on the series. Mm-hmm. But he's okay. a fun character. I think he, he, he came up. Be, at he got to be James. He got to be James Bond in this one. Yes, yes, that was yeah. that was pretty good. So, uh, yep. Go so, I, I guess well, we we can talk a little bit about. Why don't we talk a little bit about the casting of Tom Baker? Okay. Um, because yeah. originally, um, John Pert, we hadn't been sure whether he was going to sign on for another season, and there was a kind of some miscommunication between John Pertwee and the producers. And if he had been offered a little bit more money, which they, it turns out, would have been willing to give him if he had asked clearly, um, then he would have ended up staying another season. But between that and the sudden death of Roger Delgado, who played the master, um, Pertwee was feeling like it was time. He really enjoyed working with Roger Delgado. And when Roger Delgado died and various other things, he decided to leave the series. Sarah Jane had just been brought on a season earlier as the new companion. So she was an established presence on the show, as was Unit. Unit originally had been introduced in the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton era. It became the mainstay in the third Doctor's era. And then this is its last regular appearance on the show Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of the fourth Doctor. So um, Pertwee decided to go... And they they needed to find a new doctor. They had a bunch of different options that they were considering. They they weren't really sure what they were going for. A lot of the guys were older that they were uh, considering, which was kind of normal. At this point, Mm -hmm. Tom Baker was the youngest guy to be cast. So it was normal to have an older doctor. And that's actually why they brought in Ian Martyr as Harry Sullivan, so he could play the action parts in case they picked an older doctor. 
Um, and then once Tom Baker proved perfectly capable of doing all the action stuff, they no longer they realized we don't need Harry Sullivan anymore. And so he didn't last but a season or so. Um, having said that, Tom Baker was kind of an unexpected cast because he wasn't he was he wasn't well known as an actor at this point. Um, in fact, he was working as a construction worker, <laughs> but he had had a part in a Sinbad movie that one of the producers saw and thought, "Hmm, this guy is a possibility." And so they ended up uh, bringing him in, and he just totally clicked with the part. He didn't know. He, he confessed he didn't really know how to play it, and they said just be yourself. So he did, and so the zaniness of the Fourth Doctor mm -hmm. is really a pretty straightforward representation of Tom Baker's personality. And as the series progressed, he really took ownership of the role and uh, became, as a result, increasingly difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. um, but he became, he was simultaneously brilliant at it and became the most popular doctor and the longest running doctor thus far, staying with the part for seven years. Right. So by he was hugely successful in the role, but because he's he really is that zany personally and that demanding, um, mm -hmm. he was also difficult to work with. Interesting fun fact about him also, he used to be a Catholic monk. Right, right. For, I've heard for that. For real. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, it, you see interviews with him and, you know, we talked about Shada a couple of months ago and, you know, look at some of the, the stuff that comes on the disc that different uh, interviews or whatever. And he definitely has a bit of a ego. Yeah. And, and <laughs> others have made this observation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you listen to the interviews and it's a lot of it's about him. Yeah. But part of it is he did become a major actor as part of this. This role really uh, made him a, a household name, especially in, in Great Britain, of course. But there's there's people who know Tom Baker, even if they don't know the name, they know his look. Right. Yeah. Simpson, Simpsons loves to trot him out. Right. The Simpsons loves to have the Tom Baker doctor show up once well, in a while. Well, when you think yeah. about it, there, the, when... <laughs> If you want to have a non like a, a, a uh, an abstract representation, say, of the doctor, uh, not of the TARDIS, but of the doctor, it's the hat and the scarf. I mean, there's just something about this particular doctor that mm -hmm. for all time will represent, you know, at his most basic, the doctor. Now, when we said it was seven years. Um, he was the most. Is the longest running doctor up to this point. He still is, right? I mean, no one has yeah. surpassed him at that. Like, even in the modern Who, where there's great gaps, even like when you take those great gaps into account, no new Who doctor well, has lasted that unless long. You yes. count, unless you want to technically count Sylvester McCoy or Pat <laughs> Paul McGann, who got canceled. Right, and right. Therefore, <laughs> didn't get replaced for a long time. Yeah, I was going to say, technically, both of those have had were do the doctor, the current doctor, although no new episodes for nine years. Yeah, I would, I, I would say we'd, you'd have to say while the show is in production, you know, I, exactly. yeah, yeah that, I mean, yeah, it would big finish accepted and all that other stuff, but, but let's mm -hmm. just posit that um, yeah. <laughs> with a show this big, like it's this huge of a phenomenon. It's hard to, to kind of narrow things down. By the way, one uh, uh Thing, uh, playing off what you said, Father Corey, um, with Tom Baker's ego, in a way, he's kind of like William Shatner. Um, mm -hmm. oh, because yeah. he and he would have, you know, he would have um, friction with the producers and with fellow castmates. Right. Like initially, uh, Louise Jameson, who played Sarah Jane's replacement companion, Leela. Um, she and Tom Baker did not get along. She thought Tom Baker was very rude to her when they were having to work together and so forth. And so there have been like cast rivalries and stuff with him. Um, but also like William Shatner, a lot of that seems to be water under the bridge, that he's a achieved some, some distance and self-realization to where he can look back and admit his flaws and mm -hmm. he's patched up relationships so like now he and Leela are doing big finish together and saying great things about each other and everything like that so there's he like William Shatner he's kind of matured after he got out of the role that's a very interesting up, comparison up to a point 
Yeah, it's an yeah. interesting comparison to, with the, with Shatner because it is very similar. That's you know Shatner had worked before, but the role that really defined him and typecast him in some ways was mm-hmm. Captain Kirk, and yeah. and you know, and it sort of he sort of took possession of almost possession of Star Trek itself as his own personal possession. Right. Uh, well, run. obviously, Tim Allen's character in Galaxy Quest is completely riffing on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Also, liked uh, William Shatner, a lot of Tom Baker's frustration with producers was over stuff that he felt would either benefit or harm the show. So, like, apparently Shatner would make lots of suggestions or insist on things to producers that he thought was in the interest of the show. And Tom Baker would do the same thing with Doctor Who because you'd have these directors, like, coming through who don't know the show as well as the established actors. And so Tom Baker, with later on the aid of his future wife, Lala Ward, who was playing companion Romana, um, they would be insisting like, no, you can't do it this way. Children won't understand that. We've got to do it this way in order to in order to get this across to our audience. And so there was a, a lot of that kind of territoriality about how to best defend the show and help the show out mm-hmm. that okay. led to friction. Interesting. So, um, so let's get into this particular episode. Um, even though it's called Robot, there is no robot at all in this episode. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, as we said, this is uh, the truth in advertising. Just as it's uh, so. Here's the basic synopsis. Um, top secret plans are being stolen from you know British facilities. Unit is called in. All evidence points to the culprit being a. Uh, some kind of sentient robot created by a think tank called Think Tank, which is yeah, a, yeah. It's it's the robot's s- name. Oh, the robot's name, by the way, is K One, yes. which is interesting in light of the fact that later on in Doctor Who we're going to meet another robot called K Nine. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was trying to think of like what does K One stand for, but uh, maybe there would be I don't know. Um, so anyway, he has, he's he has apparently been programmed with the Asimov's basic laws of. Uh, robotics, which means you cannot uh, uh, do not harm uh, any human being, uh, but um, he's been but do what they say, right? And and so he's having this conflict in his programming that causes problems. And meanwhile, the doctor is recovering from his regeneration and is a, a bit discombobulated, and that plays into some of what happens here. We have. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the main antagonist is the Scientific Reform Society, which uh, they yeah. look very much like Nazis in their little uniforms and things. Yeah, I, I had to laugh with the, the the robot. You know, he talks about the the prime directive of the robot. I'm sitting there thinking not to interfere in lesser species, uh, not more capable species. Right. <laughs> that, oh wait, wrong yeah. show. Star Star Trek has kind of ruined that phrase, but prime directive does have a meaning apart from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, I, I really like all the murky POV shots from the robot. Right. You know, it's, it, can you just imagine on a hazy 70s television set? I mean, what is going on on the screen here? <laughs> right. Well, and it's it, it preserves that mystery for a little bit. It's a robot. Well, what does the robot look like and what are, what is it going to be? Um, it, just a, a little uh, technical note. Uh, I note that the um, the third doctor's John Pertwee's final story of uh First story, I'm sorry, was on film, whereas this mm-hmm. one is clearly shot on video. So there's a yeah. there's a qualitative difference in uh, the in these ep- in these episodes from and one would, season and, to the next. And you would notice that too within episodes because they would shoot like outdoor scenes on film and interior scenes on video. You know, right. So you'll see the quality shift. And yeah. that, that's one thing that always fascinated me as a kid, where you could you could see that obvious change. It's like why did? And I, I thought it was just a British TV thing that when you go out when, <laughs> when British TV film outside, it just looks different than when they film inside. Yeah. And part of the element was because of the equipment used, the cameras used, uh, mm-hmm. the the soundstage cameras were these big hulking, just they couldn't take them outside. Whereas Correct. you know if you so if you needed to shoot outside, you had to shoot on film. Yeah. Uh, so, by the way, talking about John John Pertwee in his era, um, there are a number of overlaps that are kind of interesting with this episode. Uh, we mentioned Unit, 
and the characters associated with Unit is one of them. Also, uh, you may remember from when we recently did uh, Spearhead from Space, John Pertwee's first episode as the Doctor. In that episode, he saw a kind of old-fashioned roadster car mm-hmm. that he took a fancy to, and they said, well, I'm sorry, we can't give you that one because uh, it was owned by somebody else. And he said, well, maybe some other one. And in this episode, we see the last regular appearance of the car he did get. It's a mm-hmm. roadster painted yellow named Bessie. Yep. And Tom Baker uses it for the first and only time. And so this is another kind of loose thread from the John Pertwee era that gets tied up here. Bessie, in, I forget if they do any of the fancy driving with Bessie but um, no. in this episode, but Bessie... No drives has the ability to like drive super fast and suddenly slam on the brakes without throwing everyone to their death out of the car because it's got inertial dampers. It can also be driven robotically, so it's kind of like one of those, you know, autonomous driving things it's a now. Tesla. It's like yeah. yeah. Um so Bessie is another one of the overlaps. No, also, there, and there wasn't there with, with uh-huh. Bessie there they didn't really do a lot with it because there's a scene uh where Tom Baker is standing in the car and I think it was Harry was driving and he takes off and you can see Tom Baker almost fall out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, one other thing, and this was something I, I saw in an, uh, in a book I was reading where Tom Baker was discussing this. Um, the writers, because, you know, they didn't yet know the personality of the new doctor, somewhat kind of kept writing in the John Pertwee vein. Mm. And one of the, things that Tom Baker noted about a difference in Pertwee's style and his style is Pertwee had kind of an aristocratic attitude to where he would do a lot of kind of subtle put downs Mm -hmm. of other people. And Baker's attitude was he Pertwee's really good at that. But that kind of subtle put down of other people is really not where Tom Baker's wheelhouse is. He's more zany. Mm -hmm. And so um, it took the writers a while to get out of that Pertwee mode. And some of these early stories like Robot are characterized by a more John Pertwee style of writing. It's interesting. I mean, that, that actually makes me uh, think um, you mentioned that Tom Baker for a time was an actual Catholic monk. His background is Irish Catholic, right? Like he's his. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's several generations living in Britain, but, but, yeah. but going back, it's Irish. He's so, like Sylvester McCoy. Yeah. So not also Catholic. Right. And so not, um, from an aristocratic family or anything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. much right. more definitely working class background. Right. Okay. Um, so you know, with the regeneration, since we're talking about regeneration, post regeneration episodes there, that we have settled into this running joke that will continue on to today where the doc, the doctor sees his new face and makes a disparaging remark about it. Like there just seems to yeah. be this this sort of a you know oh look at my face oh I look terrible what's with this nose and like the you know so the actor is put in this position of having to make fun of his own looks which yeah. I don't know if, if it's a writer <laughs> thing or what. <laughs> they they usually give him something nice to say too like oh but I think the ears have potential. Right. Um, right. Also, we have the kind of solidification of something that's been there before, but not to this scale of the doctor being in this wacky regeneration madness. Mm -hmm. We had a little bit of that when Patrick Troughton did the first regeneration. We had a little bit more of it when uh, John Pertwee had the second regeneration. But in this episode, they just go full on comedy with mm-hmm. Tom with Tom Baker like trying on all these wacky outfits <laughs> and including the viking you know <laughs> including the viking with the fake viking horns and doing like the to prove his fitness to uh to uh to Harry Sullivan he does the creepy jump rope theme i mean mother mother shall i die yes my dear by and by and <laughs> with, with Harry with, the, <laughs> yeah. with Harry jumping Harry. in the rope with him <laughs> and so they're like face to face doing that um all, and then finally he settles on what becomes his iconic look which is the kind of the the bohemian coat and hat with the super long scarf and there's a there's a real neat but real fast behind the scenes story about the scarf the reason it's so long is not by design they gave all of this yarn to a woman named begonia pope 
who, uh, great name. who which is such a great name. Um, but they didn't tell her. They said, make us a scarf out of this. And and they didn't tell her how long they wanted the scarf to be. So she just kept going and used all of the yarn and figured they could adjust it to whatever length they needed it to be afterwards. <laughs> and when they saw it, it's like, OK, this is it. This is our new look. And it's defined the look of Doctor mm-hmm. Who ever since. And, and they, there's been there are different versions of that scarf, but still the long scarf was very much yeah. a part of the fourth doctor's persona. And they make it part of the story. I mean, the doctor uses the scarf in different ways, like to, to, you know, to, mm-hmm. to trip people, to tie off to things, to, it becomes part of his toolkit, which is uh, great. It's sort of like Batman's uh, tool belt. Um, so we have so we have the introduction of Harry Sullivan, who we are, you know, we, we, are, we are very clear he's a Navy doctor uh, because he keeps referring to it as sick bay instead of the infirmary. He very intentionally yeah. calls it the sick bay. Yeah, um, but he's working for UNIT, which is a United Nations organization. Right. And, and like, Jimmy, did you say like so this is the last time we'll see UNIT and Doctor Who until New Who? It's the last oh. regular appearance. They, 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 we do see the brigadier and unit a few more times, but it's scattered and on just on an occasional basis. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, and then, uh, so we, we get this, uh, the think tank, Sarah Jane, uh, you know, while the, while the doctor is incapacitated, Sarah Jane heads off to the think tank to kind of, you know, because. To talk to them about these series of break-ins and uh, stealing of the secret information that they think is connected. Including all all the launch codes for all the missiles in the (laughs) U.S. and Russia and China. Right. We'll get to that. given to Britain. Britain is the one trustworthy country. The neutral country. Like, wait, Britain is part of NATO. They're on the U.S. side. (laughs) Even back then, Britain had nukes. Right. That was... And furthermore, if you know anything about the history of the atomic bomb, this like politics must be very different in the <clears throat> universe than they are here, because even though <laughs> the U- the UK and the US were allies in World War Two, and even though a lot of British scientists helped the US with the Manhattan Project, building the first atomic bombs, as soon as the war was over. All of that cooperation ended and Mm -hmm. the Americans had all of the nuclear expertise and the Britons were playing catch up and there was and we were not sharing with them things that the British thought we would be sharing with them. And there was kind of a not exactly a rivalry, but a sort of attempt on the part of. British nuclear scientists, like in developing nuclear power, to kind of prove to the Americans that okay, we can make a valuable contribution here, and and there were um, mishaps along the way where um, like the 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 British were developing a particular kind of nuclear reactor. And they brought in some Americans to consult and they were expecting to impress the Americans. And immediately the American scientists are like pointing out all these flaws in their design that are going to lead to nuclear accidents if they don't fix them. (laughs) (laughs) And so the kind of nuclear cooperation that happened in the real world between America and Britain was just vastly different than, oh, yeah, here are all of our launch codes. Yeah. My note is, oh, I love the cockamamie plan that the Brigadier outlined. I mean, this, yeah. <laughs> so just just for the for the listener who hasn't seen this episode lately, apparently the U.S., Russia and China ensured peace by giving the locations and launch codes of all their nuclear weapons to a neutral country. So they chose Great Britain. And as I wrote, wasn't Great Britain part of NATO? Uh, and then so here's the dialogue. The Brigadier. Well, naturally, naturally enough, the only country that could be trusted with such a role was Great Britain. And the doctor says, oh, well, naturally, I mean, the rest were all foreigners. <laughs> the Brigadier says, well, exactly. Some nice sarcasm there from Tom Baker. Yes, yeah. that, that was, was good. That was a that was a good exchange. So, yes, uh, everything important is being held by uh, Britain and, and, and they show themselves uh, so trustworthy to hold it <laughs> here. Yeah, well, it's like the, what happens in this episode is precisely why we would not do this in the real world. Mm-hmm. And again, this doesn't this come up again in New Who in uh, the in the end of time where uh, the the master takes control of unit, which has control of all the nuclear weapons in the world. Like, have we yeah. not learned our lesson in 40 yeah. some odd years, guys? <laughs> 
So, um, so Sarah Jane's goes to the think tank, and it, I found this a very interesting moment. She makes a male chauvinist mistake, and she's yeah. greeted by a man and a woman, and assumes that the man is the guy in charge, and the woman must be his assistant. And she gets her comeuppance from this woman who mm-hmm. says, "You know, uh, you're, uh, you know, I am the the person in charge." And you know, and that's a and she specifically says, "I didn't expect uh, you know a chauvinist reaction from you, Miss Smith." Right. And right. and that's so such a great moment because Sarah Jane has been our feminist intrepid reporter on the show, and even earlier in this episode has been dissing uh, Harry Sullivan behind his back for being traditional in terms of gender roles. Right. And then she puts her foot right in it, and it's just a great character moment to see, you know, <laughs> someone have these ideals, and but then inadvertently not live up to them. Exactly. Um, so she gets... She, my ahead. point, because we all do that. Right, and right. And it's, it's a humanizing moment for her. Right, right. Um, so... Uh, the robot, uh, Sarah Jane, gets a peek at K-1, the robot, which looks a lot like Robbie the robot from Forbidden Planet, if you notice. And this is sort of... Mm-hmm. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, More silvery. Yeah. The, the the dome top and that's just the impression I got was it mm-hmm. sort of this is what robots were thought to be like back then. Mm-hmm. You had the Lost in Space robot. You have this robot with the robotic voice and all that. Um, it's very literal in responding to inquiries. Which I think is well. That's just like Siri and Alexa and Google. Yeah, Home. exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Sarah Jane is asked, you know, to question, you know, to, to pose a question to it. Um, the problem is that Sarah. The the problem here is that it treats I, I Sarah's just, question think, as vague. Yeah, I think wasn't. if I, I I think if I said like some of the people in this episode do, I think if I said. Alexa, this person is an enemy of the human race. Destroy them. I think I'd get a response like, I'm sorry. I don't know how to help you with that one. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. There we go. Alexa just said, sorry, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually thought I hadn't turned my Alexa off before we started recording. <laughs> and that's why I wear, I wear headphones. So a certain thing won't fire off when you guys saying something. <laughs> right, yeah. right. No. Uh, but uh, uh, hopefully our listeners wear headphones around their uh, devices. Um, the interesting thing is, is how Sarah gets very worried. Sarah Jane, it gets very worried about the robot's feelings. Yeah, and the, mm-hmm. the director of the think tank is very condescending. Oh, you must be the sort of girl who gives... You know, motor cars, pet names, which I think is kind of funny because that, um, that was, you know, that was a dig for that yeah, was John yeah, Pertwee. A, that was a dig, yeah. But but it's interesting that Sarah Jane immediately goes for this this idea that the you know the the robot has these feelings, and it kind of it's kind of interesting that she goes there with it. That's that's the direction they take her in. Um, well, that's kind of a trope in um, in these in these kind of science fiction dramas of this period there it's not a realistic treatment of of robotics because if you if you really were taking seriously the fact that a robot has no feelings and only does what it's programmed to do then it would keep the robot from being an actual character and just mm-hmm. being a tool and they need the robot to be a character in this because basically what this story is, is a roboticized version of either Beauty and the Beast or King Kong, which is an apified version of Beauty and the Beast. And there's a literal got, scene that plays right off of King Kong, you know, later yeah, on. Where, right. where you have Sarah Jane in the Fay Ray role. And so the robot and Sarah Jane need to bond the same way that King Kong and Fay Ray do or that Beauty and the Beast do. And that means that the robot needs to be an emotional, an emotionally conflicted character that Sarah can show compassion to. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's also another trope, which which is this idea of the the computer or a robot or a robot uh, being forced to go against some in, you know its internal programming and the contradiction mm-hmm. that makes it go mad. I mean, we've. Right. Star right. Trek famously did this in a, in a couple episodes uh, where logic um, 
you know, I'm I always lie, and then it, the the the, yeah. the the logic puzzle makes the robot's head explode. Um, but mm-hmm. there's this this sort of two two thousand and one same thing. Right, right, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, in fact, uh, did it probably better than anyone in that sense uh, where uh, Hal you know went mad. Um, Carrying that contradiction to its programming, mm-hmm. so again, another interesting trope here. Um, it's it. I I had got a little bit of a chuckle when they're they're adjusting the 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 K one robot, and they use this large screwdriver. Right. Uh-huh. Whatever they're doing, they just reach this large <laughs> screwdriver down there and start twisting it around. It must di- be nice to be able to just adjust it that simple. <laughs> exactly. Re-program Apple hasn't it. got a hold of it. Yeah. Apple hasn't got a hold of it yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I have my uh, Android screwdriver here, so I can adjust my phone. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we find out that the the uh, the robot was created by a a scientist who no longer works at the think tank, uh, Professor Kettlewell. Kettlewell, which, which is a, which is a great name. Yes, another great name. Um, I really like the fact that Professor Kettlewell, even though we're initially meant to like him. He turns out to be on the side of mm-hmm. the think tank. So yes. he's actually a bad guy, but he's a good bad guy in that he doesn't want to go as far as everyone else right. does. And so he's this morally ambiguous character, which makes him so much more interesting. It's right. it's subtle and complex storytelling, which is one of the things I love about Doctor Who through all the the, the, the best Doctor Who through all the, the years mm-hmm. is yeah. they don't talk down to the uh, the the, uh, the audience. It's it's not always just these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and just follow them, you know, well, through the through the well, numbers. There's an interesting, complex person yeah. here. Well, it's well, interesting, it, too, because Doctor Who is traditionally and to this day is still considered children's television right over in great britain and yet you watch some of these episodes they are not they're not simple episodes they're very complex they're very deep yeah and in fact what late late in the uh episode i guess tom baker refers to the robot as having a suppressed oedipus complex leading to excessive guilt and compensation yep which is about as unchildren's television as you can imagine. <laughs> right. But it plays directly into the themes of the show with the King Kong, Beauty and the Beast thing, because mm-hmm. he's at this point killed his father, Professor Kettlewell. So that fits the Oedipus complex. And he apparently wants to sleep with his mother, the mo- motherly figure that shown him compassion, Sarah Jane mm-hmm. Smith. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what do we have here? So the doctor gets into this uh, where the, the the robot is trying to kill the doctor um, when the doctor goes to see uh, Professor Ke- Professor Kettlewell, uh, and there's this great moment where he puts his hat over the the robot's face to shut yeah. it down, mm-hmm. and so it apparently shuts down. But it was only playing possum and <laughs> comes at him. Like, it was yeah, a, it was a f- fell for the oldest well, trick in the you, book. You know, you wonder you wonder though how much of that is was influenced as kind of a dig at the Daleks. Right. You know, oh, the wow. idea of, you know, just put the hat over the eye stock. Yeah. <laughs> the, right, right. <laughs> the doctor's gotten uh, sloppy because he's always going up against the Daleks. Um, and, uh, one one note I had, I thought it was really interesting, and this is something they that they do repeatedly in this episode, but I don't think they really pick it up and use it a lot in the future. They have Tom Baker delivering a lot of his lines lying down. Um, mm-hmm. Because he'll be like lying in a truck bed and and talking with the brigadier and and other people, and later on he's like lying down on a desk with his hat over his face, and it happens mm-hmm. at least two or three times where he's in this prone position but carrying on acting, which I thought was a really interesting choice. You don't see that a lot, right. uh, especially because it's not like he's lying on a couch; he's lying in inappropriate places. And yeah. and and continuing to act. And I thought that was a fascinating thing that they were at least experimenting with. Yeah, I think it plays into the the, the we're contrasting him with the third doctor with John Pertwee. And it plays into that Tom Baker's zaniness, you know, that that mm-hmm. that aspect of it. It really it's that post regeneration episode where we really want to make that distinction. This is a different kind of doctor. Mm-hmm. It's the same and different. Well, he's and, riding in the military truck and he's got his feet kicked up on the top of the window. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Very un John Pertwee, who was very aristocratic, never would be in that position. Um, also, we get some neat some of the kind of neat conceptual tongue twister dialogue 
that Tom Baker will later come to be known for. Like at one point in this episode, he says, people can never see what's under their noses above their heads. Referring to the sun, (laughs) which is in one sense above our heads and in another sense under our noses. So we we have this uh, the last piece of the puzzle here that is being held in the this this safe um by the uh, the government minister uh it's I think it's the launch codes I think right yep. and uh which is you know a good idea let's keep it in somebody's house um and but it's in this completely impregnable uh inobtainium safe yeah it was Dynastream is this like a, a completely like made up for this moment? Completely Have we heard this made before? Made up for this moment, yeah. Okay. I've never heard of it before. Dynastream Not that I'm is aware of. It's indestructible. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> except um, if you're a giant robot, yes, with a ex- with a, dis- mm-hmm. with a destructor beam, right? Yeah, I hate that. Um, the doctor, you know, makes a point. It says in science as in morality, the end never justifies the means. And I think that was a very interesting moment here because mm-hmm. so much today uh, we hear the opposite, in, especially in science, where the end does justify the means for so many people. Right. Um, it was very interesting to hear the doctor saying the saying it the other way. Uh, so very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, One thing that I thought was interesting talk, uh, talking about technology from the period. So when, after Think Tank has gotten oh, and by the way, Think Tank is not the first society we've seen like this on Doctor Who. Right. Basically, they they have this radical vision for how society needs to be reformed and they're going to lead us into a better world that's redesigned according to their principles mm-hmm. and everything will be much better once our current civilization is destroyed and they get to rebuild. And and this we've seen this exact thing before on Doctor Who. Um, an example from j- the, just shortly earlier was um, uh, a, a group in the dino- the dinosaur invasion series of um, of John Pertwee's era, where there was a similar group that was going to destroy current civilization by reversing time and bringing us back to the dinosaur age <laughs> and then using transplanted humans from the present who thought they were going to another planet to rebuild a new paradisical society. And and there's even a reference to that <clears throat> uh, story at the beginning where Tom Baker is babbling as he's just regenerated and he says, the Brontosaurus is large and placid, Brigadier. And, and it's <laughs> yeah. a direct quote from that. That previous story. And so it, they're kind of winking at the audience. It's like we've seen this exact kind mm-hmm. of plot before. Um, but then once they have the codes, they, you know, they go to use them and the doctor does this super fast typing on the computer keyboard to undo it. And actually, they've set that up for us earlier where we saw him type super fast a note Mm-hmm. Uh, at unit headquarters. So they've established he can type super fast. But what they haven't established is how any computer in the 1970s could take input that fast. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, my I, I, t- I touch type really fast and I hit the problem with my computer's input buffer gets full mm-hmm. all the time, even with 21st century technology. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, rem- I remember as a kid, you know, having a Commodore 64 with its, you know, whopping one megabyte or mega. Uh, ah. Yeah, anyway, kilobyte, you know, one kilobyte yeah. buffer, Ma- kilobyte. <laughs> megahertz. That's what I was thinking. Of, you know, oh, yeah. megahertz, and you know, yeah, you you'd type too fast for the buffer. It right. was easy to do. Oh, constantly. So well, it, while it is, it is harder now, but it, I still find myself waiting occasionally for it to <laughs> let me give it new input. Yeah. So while we're talking about uh, plot holes and problems, um, <laughs> there was uh, the the unit soldiers firing every gun at that robot uh, on a regular basis, while Jellico walks beside it unconcerned with all the bullets. Yep. Fly. I don't know where all the bullets yeah. are going, but apparently Jellico's not worried about any of them hitting him. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No um, ricochets. No ricochets. No no bullets well, coming it's, it's in. It's living metal, so it was absorbing it or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. And then um, the the brigadier says, "Think Tank built a bunker back in the Cold War days. This is the mm-hmm. mid '70s. This well, is still Cold 19, War, right? It, it's it's 1980, according to or according to a, a, a soon to come Sarah Jane episode. Okay, or, or comment by Sarah Jane in a soon to come episode. So they could be 
this could be a reference to that. They could be conceptualizing it as maybe the Cold War ended, and that's why Russia mm-hmm. and China and the United States have all given their launch codes to Britain to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. They uh, don't spell it out that way, but that would be my guess. All right. I'll buy that. Um, so in this, oh, okay, ahead, Father Corp, before I move on. I was going to say, I mean, this wasn't the hottest point of the Cold War by any stretch of the imagination, but it was still very much an active Cold War oh, yeah. in the yeah. mid-70s. So uh, speaking of the bunker, um, so the Science Reform Society, all these brains, all these really smart people, they go down into the bunker and barricade themselves in because units coming to get them. And now you're going to make sure there's enough food and water. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're going to go inventory the food and water. Maybe you should have done that earlier. They have more important things to think about, like whether women should wear skirts or not. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. And then uh, uh, in, the, um, in the CG department, the uh, the tank that comes, which... Oh, yes, the little bottle tank. The little bottle yeah. tank shot from force perspective. I just thought that was very funny. It was hysterical. So the Brigadier brought his toy tank to come shoot the robot. Um, I, I love the horrible chroma key special effects in this episode where the ronst, where the monster starts to go Super Saiyan and grows. Yeah. Um, it's apparently, and I had to, uh, uh, you know, originally I'm like, why is the robot growing here? I mean, I know they established early on that it's made of quote unquote living metal so mm-hmm. it can grow. But why yeah. is it supersizing at this precise moment? And I think what it is, is the Brigadier is shooting it with the disintegrator gun. Yeah, right. Instead of disintegrating, it's causing it to grow. But they don't even get us a good beam of special no. effect from the disintegrator gun to show that happening. Right. He's just pointing a gun in its direction and it starts growing. Right. Right. And, and, and there, there is a line by the doctor where he specifically says, well, the gun, instead of it, this, it, I can't remember the exact way he phrased it, but to the point of, it gave him the energy he needed to grow. Yeah. Instead of disintegrating him, it gave him the energy he needed to grow. I just Unlike can... any other form of matter it's been pointed at. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I like that scene, though, because the Brigadier almost gets a little uh, little full of himself. Like, well, we finally don't need the doctor for this one. I think we can handle this problem. <laughs> and he gets okay. to look at his face like, or not. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's a an interesting reference. So as the unit is getting uh, literally stomped by the robot, at one point a soldier gets flattened by the uh, by it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the Harry turns to the doctor and says, or actually they drive up in Bessie's what it is, and says, "Curiouser mm-hmm. and curiouser." And the doctor says, "Said Alice," uh, reference to yep. Alice in Wonderland. Um, so, and of course, you know, as, by the end. Um, they, oh, and the, the way they've def- the way they end up defeating it right. is they've got a virus um, right. to eat the living metal, so that it does the job the destructo gun should have done and mm-hmm. disintegrates the robot, and it ends up shrinking and becomes a tiny little withered, melted-looking thing. Right, and set to Sarah Jane's um, dismay, because again, the 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 uh, King Kong thing, you know, the it was a it was a giant rampaging monster, but. It still had feelings, and I feel bad mm-hmm. for it. Um, Was beauty killed the beast, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or a virus? Either one, you know. Yep. And so, at the end, while Sarah is sad, Sarah Jane is sad. The doctor, for the first time, takes out a paper bag out of his pocket and says, "Would you like a jelly baby?" <laughs> yeah. Yes. And now, jelly babies have actually been on the show before this, and he's offered them to people before. But this becomes one of Tom Baker's iconic bits, right? That mm-hmm. gets used from here on out, right? Um, and then he has a line where he says, there's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. And you know, he says this to Sarah Jane. And it's kind of interesting because it, again, another, it almost feels like that's another characteristic or key to the fourth mm-hmm. doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I, I, the third doctor was so very grown up. He was James Bond, you know. But the fourth mm-hmm. doctor is more fun, zany, childish. Yeah. And every doctor tends to be a reaction to the previous one. So we started out with the very adult, very mature, very old and kind of crotchety William Hartnell, which then led us to the childlike Patrick Troughton, which then led us to the aristocratic 
John Pertwee, and now we're regressing back to a childish Tom Baker. Who so you have this kind of rhyme between right. the first and the third Doctor as the grown-ups, and the second and the fourth mm-hmm. Doctor as the zany kid Doctors by comparison. Yeah, and Modern Who did not technically follow that pattern. Like Christopher Eccleston was more grown-up. He still was a bit zany, but not. But he's compared to the others, more grown-up. But um, Tennant a little zanier. Matt Smith, mm-hmm. zanier Way still. zanier, yeah. And then a whole switch with Capaldi. I mean, that's just a, the, the opposite direction. Yeah, and notice what happened to the ratings when they did that. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Well, the question is then, uh, to me, to my mind, we're, we're kind of uh, uh, on a different territory here, but is how does that play out with Jodie Whittaker and how how is yeah. that do- doctor going to feel? I mean... We're as, we're as different as you can be right now between, yeah, exactly. between doctors. So I'm curious to see how they will play her compared to Capaldi and the others. It's going to be interesting. I don't yep. I don't think we'll see the attack eyebrows, that's for sure. No, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> so uh, so anything else you guys want to, to, to say about this episode, Robot? Um, I love the tiny Sarah Jane doll that the robot holds <laughs> yeah, Fay exactly. Ray-like at one point. <laughs> Yes, yes. I was yeah. actually wondering if that was like an actual toy from the era. You know, you could get like a little action figure Sarah Jane or something, or if that's just a little prop they made up. Oh, it's a prop they made up. I figured, yeah. but... Uh- I also like the there's one point where the robot is like crashing through power lines and when it's giant. And mm-hmm. uh, and we've seen that same thing before in the original Godzilla movie and in Godzilla yep. versus King Kong. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a throwback to those to all those classic uh, giant monster movies. Well, I think that's it from us. Uh, so what did you think of the fourth Doctor Story robot. Uh, Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, uh, leaving us some feedback or send us an email to doctorwho at sqpn.com. You can find links to all our personal social media and websites on our show notes on sqpn.com. Please check out our new podcast, StarQuest Headlines, four headlines every day in two minutes. And uh, we appreciate you uh, giving it a listen, subscribe, let us know what you think, review it on iTunes and Google Play. That always helps uh, us get, reach more people with uh, more audience with our podcasts. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 10th Doctor Story and, and one of my favorites, The Girl in the Fireplace. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Well, thank you very much. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. And remember, as the iceberg said to the Titanic, glug, glug. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those...